0: Welcome to Rocking Our Prize. I'm Dr. Alice Evans, today discussing how to improve workers' rights in global supply chains with the brilliant Professor Sanchita Saxena at Berkeley. So I'd like to structure the podcast into two parts. First, assessing why labour abuses persist, and then exploring what can be done about it. Right. Sanchita, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Alice. It's great to
0: be here. Okay, so my first question. Why are garment wages so low in Bangladesh?
1: Well, you know, it's been in the, somewhat in the interest of all the parties involved to keep them low. Mm. Um, so, you know, the government, they want to remain competitive. Yes. So it makes sense for them to keep the wages extremely low. The brands and buyers sourcing from Bangladesh, they always want to go to the, you know, where they can pay the lowest wages. And Bangladesh for many years, Uh, several decades actually they've marketed themselves on low wages being the cheapest being the cheapest abundant labor and actually producing really basic goods that's that's been kind of their um, their strategy in some ways Um, so that's been the niche uh, since you know once the quotas were you know even before the quotas were um, you know even before the quotas expired and then post MFA as well.
0: Okay and I guess we'd also add the the demographic aspect and the human capital. I mean, you've got a country, what's the population of Bangladesh, 160 million. Yes. You've got a huge rural surplus huge, labor, right. so many people desperate for any job.
1: That's right. That,
0: that partly will keep wages low and also low levels of human capital. That's meaning right. Productivity is low. So in order to be cost competitive, the That's strategy right. has been uh, to cut costs uh, right. rather than to move up the value chain. So that you know, right. they're, they're predominating and sort of cut, make, trim, etc. Right. Okay, second question. So I think, yeah, garment wages in in Bangladesh are the lowest in the world, I think. But there have been various efforts to improve working conditions and wages.
1: Why haven't they worked? So actually researching this book over the last few years, Mm. what I sort of realized, the realization I came to was that why these programs haven't worked or all Mm. these interventions over Mm. the last several decades, why they haven't worked is because we've tried to focus on the wrong place in some ways, or we'd focused on the wrong thing. So all these monitoring compliance programs really focus on sort of checklist of items that need to be corrected at the factory level. But we, so we look very much at the factories, we look at the locus of production in all these countries. But what we don't look at is overall the the larger business model. And what I'm really finding, what i found in the last year or so, more and more reading and sort of how they all connect, it's really the business model that's in place that actually keeps all these these conditions the way they are. And it, it is very hard to improve those. So you can monitor factories all you want. The changes are actually incremental in terms of you know, workers, real conditions improving. Um, until you actually change the overall business model, which is really, that you know has that sort of triple squeeze on price, on quantity, on time. Unless those change, it's really going to be hard to make any substantial changes in, in, the, in working conditions.
0: Right, absolutely. The The tendency has been to talk about compliance as a third party or internal yes. auditor. Mm-hmm. They check various things, but there, there's a sense of decoupling in that yes. firms' procurement rarely use that information to reward firms that are doing well. That's right. Uh, and to what, what incentive is there for factory managers to heavily invest? Moreover, right. if you're on a short-term three-month contract, you don't know
1: whether that's been going to be renewed. That's right. Why, why do something for a firm if you don't know they're coming back? Right, that's right. And they're always concerned that they may not get that business again. So there's this feeling of, you know, I mean, they've they've made connections between kind of the the day-to-day sort of abuse and harassment that workers face has a lot to do with the pressures that they're getting. So they need to produce, you know, ridiculous amounts of of garments in, in an extremely short amount of time. So that incredible pressure and there's also, you know, the sort of the gender hierarchy, et cetera, yes. in the factories that kind of allow, you know, these sort of really terrible conditions to persist. And they're not going to change, really. I mean, you can even train managers, you know, there's all sort of in- sorts of intervention types of programs that are happening at the factories. They're very incremental. That's what we've seen. You
0: know? I think that's so important to... <sighs> I get so frustrated too that you'll see this evaluation of a private regulatory initiative, and people say there's been an improvement. Mm-hmm. But it's like, well, wait a minute, take a step back. That is to- so so tiny, very
1: marginal. Like what what yeah. is
0: that? What is that? Uh, yeah, yeah. What why And it? in
1: fact, I'll just add mm. also. I think some of the improvements that have been made mm. have not been due to outside monitors or international programs i mean they have been due to the activism amongst the you know the workers um in bangladesh has a very active i mean not only in the form of unions which is you know there's that's been contentious so there's a lot of crackdown on unions but i mean a lot of informal organizing or female-led garment worker movements and i think some of the changes that have happened really i would credit you know the workers movements right absolutely
0: every time the minimum wage in bangladesh has been increased it's It's been because of militant labor protests not necessarily Mm -hmm. organized by by formal labor unions but this sporadic violent
1: unrest and they're coming out on the streets and they're visible they're vocal and they're trying to push so the incremental wage you know increases have been because of that yeah absolutely it's not
0: because of some audit (laughs) yeah right no not at all yes okay um Question number three, what could improve wages? So, yes, we've, we've highlighted domestic activism, but that's sporadic, right? And mm-hmm. let's not uh, romanticise that activism. I mean, in this year, 10,000 workers yeah. came out onto the streets. And the, what did the police do? They yeah. returned to a tear gas, yeah. rubber bullets. Mm-hmm. Workers were delisted. Right. There's now talk of fingerprinting, to mm-hmm. using mm-hmm. biometrics to you know check on workers and perhaps mm-hmm. for those who are unruly so I think there it seems in the context of labor repression where governments are trying to curb labor rights yeah. in order to keep prices low yeah. domestic activism are personally I'm skeptical how much they can achieve I mean if you've seen your colleagues lose their jobs right. um, or being tear gassed or brutally repressed
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: you know that's going to dampen Lab, labour activism and it does, right? Sure. And I'm I I think Analy Kimbeer mm-hmm. had this nice study um, where she, she uh with her with her recent work she interviewed uh the uh, workers at the Accord and the Alliance, and I think only 5% had confidence in trade unions, or mm-hmm, 5% mm-hmm. thought trade unions were important. I mean, if you don't see trade unions making major gains making for change, workers, yeah. you observe that, and, th- and you don't have faith in the collective power of labour because you haven't seen it happen. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so I'm, I, I'm totally with you that domestic activism has been important mm-hmm. in securing these gains. gains, But wages remain incredibly low and Mm -hmm. so what what could improve them? That's what I want to know. Well I think we have to go
1: back to so I mean there's that you know sort of the two levels. I mean there's the grassroots movements, which as you said, you know, have improved over the years and the incremental changes that have happened have been due to that. But then again we have to look at the the business model and really the sort of from the top down. Buyers and you know brands need to commit to paying not on I would say not only higher wages, but a living wage, and there's a lot of debate around what a living wage needs to be I mean right now, even with these incremental changes as inflation goes up too it, it it's not making a real difference in the lives of workers unfortunately because it's not considered a living wage in that sense and, you know living wage is defined as you know sort of what the whatever wage for that country you need to live uh You know, decent life. Of course, that that varies, and that can vary from country to country. But I think ultimately, to make significant gains, the buyers and the brands have to commit to that. I mean, that has to be a part of their business practice, that we will pay a living wage in the countries that we source from. But why would they do that? What would motivate buyers to do that?
0: I mean, I I totally agree with you that if buyers paid a living wage and committed to continuing to source from Bangladesh then yes we, workers could get higher wages but why why would any brand do why that? would they
1: do that i mean there's partly maybe there's a business reason for that maybe it would be ultimately better for their business if workers are paid better they were they are going to be more productive they you know the, the work could improve i mean there's a business argument there's also sort of the you know there's the ethical moral argument um that that is kind of what they need to do and they're all you know we're trying to think of ways to have these provisions, you know, UN guiding principles and all these other sort of soft ways to kind of kind of push um, buyers and brands to do that. Um, it, it, it's more of an ethical argument, what I What I'm
0: concerned mm-hmm. about is I don't see much evidence that brands, I mean, we've had various voluntary mechanisms, the whole audit yeah. business is kind mm-hmm. of voluntary. And I don't see that much evidence that one, Brands who do nothing are hit by consumer concerns. Mm -hmm. Lena Mosley uh, and Alfaust have this paper whereby after Rana Plaza, they look at the US customs data and they find that U.S. buyers are sourcing from Bangladesh just as before right. and only a minority source from the Accord or the Alliance. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, they just
0: don't seem that mm-hmm. concerned. Mm-hmm. They seem perfectly happy with the status quo because it maximises their profits. The pro- yeah. Consumers turn a blind eye. You know, mm-hmm. I just get whatever's fashionable <laughs> or funky or mm-hmm. makes mm-hmm. me look slightly better. And um, and I just don't sit... And I, where do you see change happening what what's the political economy that could change the problem that you identify
1: yeah i mean i think it it has to be there has to be sort of an you know a larger international pressure a larger international commitments it's all, it's in combination you know with the governments um i mean there's really no sort of one thing i think it's a combination of factors that has to that has to play into it um, i mean i think international organizations maybe can push for certain things. Um, you what know, kind they, of organizations? I mean, you have you the, the, sort of the them. business and human rights communities, you know, who sort of, you know, the UN, for but example. So you just yeah.
0: think there should be more voluntary measures? Because
1: I, I don't see those making a difference. That's my yeah. concern. Yeah, I mean, voluntary or they, you know, they sort of, uh, there has to be, you know, they're part of a basic sort of, you know, business model. They're part of the business. You know, they've talked about living wage being as part of, um, you know, th- th- that's part of the contract. You it it's part of a cause, you know it's part of doing business so as if you integrate that into the the contract that you have um you know that, that it's just a part of it it's just a basic right that you provide um i mean i can see two, three ways that might come about one is you know you have
0: some enlightened self interest firms and they flourish mm-hmm. the thing is every time that firms do that they can be undercut by less scrupulous competitors, mm-hmm. you know, the rise of these internet, fast fashion yes, companies, right. which, which turn a blind eye. I mean, we, we see this rise of, leg- in Europe there's been this rise of legislation pushing for mandatory human rights due diligence. Yes, yeah. Some people are saying, well, there should be mandatory living wages. So one, one, one mechanism is through legislation, and I see that. Mm-hmm. But my concern there is even if you had legislation or business models that mm-hmm. mandated living wages, mm-hmm. The other possibility is that, well, firms would just automate instead. And we know that automation is happening right across Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the ILO predicts, you know, a loss of seven or 10 million jobs over Mm -hmm. the next 10 years. And if firms are compelled that every worker must be paid a living wage, Mm -hmm. it may become more business-savvy mm-hmm. to actually just automate some of that production automate, yeah. and, and, and And as Joan Robinson said, it's better to be exploited by capital than not at all. I mean, I don't know <laughs> if Bangladeshi workers would be better off if buyers... Automated production. Yeah, well,
1: that if they is just the, source from robots in Germany, or yeah. whatever. Well, and that is the question. I mean, if you know, if automation automation does come into Bangladesh, which may at some point it eventually will, although like, it's it's not clear when that mm. is going to be. No, what sure, is the sure, timeline. sure. We don't. We can't predict. But at some point, you know. Some argue that well, what it could mean is that some of these really basic jobs where the conditions are really bad and it's it's so repetitive and really you know for humans it just takes such a toll physically. If those are automated, then they it as you know workers if they move up the value chain, they will be doing more you know sort of more detailed work or they could take roles of management or they can be trained to actually. Um, you know, deal with some of this technology. So they can actually move into higher types right, of Right, okay. So yes, I'm totally
0: with you that one response to automation is by economic upgrading. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And that would be great but if that happened. But there still happens.
1: will be job losses, of
0: course, but, but, but can accommodate But all even the, if yeah. there's economic upgrade even if well even if we agree that economic upgrading could be good in some respects. One, I don't see that much evidence that this is happening in
1: Bangladesh
0: where they've no, still em- the, the, no, where they've still no. emphasized being the cheapest. I mean, yes, it's happening cheapest in
1: the basic products. Yes. really. Whether
0: know. we've seen mm-hmm. it happening in China, in Vietnam, this upgrading, mm-hmm. but it, it's it's hard to upgrade to move up. That's right. Yeah, I Bangladesh, it's not
1: made you know movements
0: in that direction. Yet, and but... also, I would ra- I would raise a further concern that I think it was mentioned in the book, or, or maybe I've read it somewhere else, that as we see, and uh, Stephanie Seriguino has highlighted, that as we see more capital-intensive
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, production, it tends to fail male labour, the more highly skilled male right. labour. Mm-hmm. And so if mm-hmm. we're talking about what's best for women, these women workers, yes. I, they may not be better off. You know, this lefty dream world of living wages, which, boot, which amplifies automation. Mm-hmm. The story of the empowered Bangladeshi garment worker I don't know what happens to her, especially in a context of climate breakdown where mm-hmm. agricultural livelihoods in Bangladesh have become so because much more precarious mm-hmm. with, uh, ru- you know, increasing
1: salinity, etc. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's unclear how it's uh, how it's going to play out. So, so, so I idea. want to play yeah.
0: devil's advocate mm-hmm. because the whole book is premised on this assumption that the status quo is terrible and I'm with you, but that it could be improved. If only we if only bias. And I, I'm just wondering, what if it can't be improved? What if this is the best case scenario?
1: <laughs> well, sure. I mean, then we can always think that we always have to look, I think, as maybe as social scientists or academics, we sort of look always for the you know how it could be different i mean that's part of our job right, right but i'm ju- mean, I'm
0: just raising a concern with this lefty utopian vision that focuses on raising wages without attending to automation productivity mm-hmm. and i just well, worry I mean, the that book, there, there are costs there are costs right
1: absolutely i mean the book is not focused only on that mm-hmm. i mean we we talk it's the book actually starts off more as a critique of the accord and sort of the the business response post rana plaza and yes. why you know what actually, what the limitations are I mean it's not just saying that it you know it there there definitely were you know gains to be made over the last five, seven years, but what are the limitations, and where do we go from now because the book also the timing is that you know it's kind of in a critical yeah. sort of situation right now in Bangladesh, you know what's going to happen? oh they kind of extended it, but then it's going to leave, and so that's how it kind of stemmed. And we're talking about, you know, sort of putting it in a larger context. I think beyond, you know, sort of Rana Plaza is not an isolated incident by any means. No. So there's a whole sort of history of, you know, the industry and what, you know, what has happened over the years. Um and then it kind of talks more about so what do we need to what do we need to think about domestically? So how do we bring the domestic actors together? So you have the government, you have the you know, private sector, you have the role of buyers. So there's some chapters on that. And then it kind of talks at the end really about Other interventions, sort of trying to pick interesting new kinds of approaches, I guess. You know, solutions is probably the wrong word. Nothing is really a solution Mm. in and of itself. And, you know, will things improve? I mean, sure. I mean, that's the hope. I think that's the only, you know, you have to have some sort of hope. Otherwise, it's, you know, if you're in a situation where you're hopeless, then you know, how do you move on from that? I mean, there are little pockets of sort of um, innovative ideas that have happened in other parts of the world, that we have a chapter on the gender violence, gender based violence, and how to use models like the court, but focusing not just on structural changes, but focusing on gender based violence in particular, you know, how to actually involve that in sort of uh, these contractual sort of mechanisms to improve this. We have community based movements, you know, how does that work? I mean, that may, in these examples from India that show that Maybe focusing on the community um, and these so the workers who are really in the informal sector, I mean, they're completely you know unregulated um, and there's no oversight. But how they can kind of work together, um, they sort of self-monitor or they become a community. Um, there's you know examples of using technology to kind of you know have empowerment of workers. So those are kind of examples of like you know not one in and of itself can solve the whole problem, but there are different ways to think about how to add sort of agency to workers, how to have them advocate for improvements. Um,
0: No, I'm totally with you. And I think that's that's something really worth emphasizing that there's, I think particularly, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think particularly in a lot of Western writing and Western NGOs, there's been a lot of attention to the accord and the alliance, yes. as if that's the big solution. Yes, absolutely. And less yeah. attention to the broader context of industrial absolutely. relations. You know, let's focus on our little interventions and what the book highlights powerfully, and I forget that Details of that fabulous table, but it highlights one, the extent of subcontracting. So yes. I think you've got 7,000 firms yes. estimated mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. And of these, how many have been through the full remediation process mm-hmm. of the Accord and the Alliance? It was oh, 79 or something.
1: Oh, yeah, very small per- yeah, yeah, I like mean, 6%. So, yes, yeah, so mm-hmm. a
0: tiny, tiny percentage. Tiny and I think percent. the book makes a powerful case thinking, you know, the Accord and the Alliance, yes, the, the Westerners, the NGOs, and the academics have been obsessed with this. Yes. But this really is just touching the surface and you're not really changing the broader international political economy, which keeps wages low. And I'm with you. I'm with you on that premise. Mm -hmm. But then my, and I, I, you know, as this sort of, as someone who also, who likes to romanticize worker activism, yes, I'm with you on any pocket of resistance and community-based organizing. Yes. Fabulous. Fabulous. And the more that women get involved in unions, the better. Excellent. Uh, because as we know across the garment industry uh, these trade unions tend to be male-dominated despite the industry being largely Mm -hmm. female. Mm -hmm. But my concern is, my concern is, you know, maybe I'm the pessimist here. Mm -hmm. You know, throughout history from Manchester to Myanmar, Mm -hmm. low-income developing countries have thrived through labour repressive manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I just worry and I think that we, when we're trying to improve labor conditions, I'm with you on criticizing the status quo and there I have no disagreements. Mm -hmm. But I think we need to be careful in just, in thinking about, you know, maybe this is just the best that can be done in a context of low productivity. And maybe for me, I mean, maybe for me, one of the biggest concerns if, you know, in order to improve wages in Bangladesh, it, shouldn't we go back to what you were saying earlier it's about economic upgrading it's about mm-hmm. productivity and so maybe w- us labor scholars need to be you know having recognized the failures mm-hmm. of the audit regime having recognized the failures of the the alliance mm-hmm. don't we need to think okay well how can we get wages to improve that's economic upgrading boosting productivity shouldn't that be our our new focus you given know, that given that you know it's all very well saying yes we, we highlight how buyers and governments could do better but that's if they wanted to and thus far they mm-hmm. They've shown no indication that they want to have some sort of benign, um, you know, benign, ben, ben, you know, benign sense of you know benevolence for workers. Mm. You know, all the all the recommendations would be fabulous if, if buyers and manufacturers and government uh, and government wanted to do all these great things. But that's why they haven't. Yeah. So in that context, shouldn't our real question be, as labour scholars, should we link up more to thinking about productivity?
1: I mean, I defer to you. I don't know because there's. I mean there's mixed evidence that mm. does productivity always No, you know, no, issue, sure. no no you no know, absolutely not increase wages. So we don't know that. And I mean the only so I don't know. I mean it's a very complicated issue. I mean it's hard to predict, you know, yes. if you do this and in you know in in the Bangladeshi context what would happen with automation and upgrading, we we don't know. Um I mean I guess all I can say at this point is that we have to think there is a movement and there's a push for there is some pressure for businesses to kind of rethink this now whether it's makes a business sense or whether it's um you know altruistic or or not there is you know i think rana plaza was significant in the sense that you know i sort of made this argument earlier at but mm. some point yes. that I think because of the the images that we saw mm. and everything is so, you know, everything is on the internet and Facebook and Twitter so mm. quickly. And when you pull out, you know, tags mm-hmm. of brands mm. from the rubble, I mean, it's a very powerful image. Yeah, and sure. it's very, um, you know, it's, it's very disconcerting for brand managers of any of these companies to actually have their companies associated with such a terrible disaster that was preventable. Um, so there is that sort of, I think, pressure um, they, you, And why did the accord and the lines come about the way they did? I mean, whether it's flawed or whether it's, you know, it's not really addressing the issues there. It, there was this attempt to try to do something. And that's I mean, the book argues actually it's a little bit misguided in what they needed to do. If we could actually put all that money and resources into doing other things that would be beneficial, you know. Um, but hasn't the- that pressure evaporated? So I'm
0: totally with you that Rana Plaza was a total travesty and it was on headlines mm-hmm. across the world from Berlin to Frankfurt to Berkeley, etc. cetera. yeah. yeah. But that attention dissipated, well, media headlines shift, and, and, yeah, and, and going back to mostly in Akhil's work, you know, buyers continue to source from, I mean, and exports of Bangladesh have grown. Mm,
1: they do. And exports
0: is, ban, you know, Bangladesh was, ban, brand, you know, the government and manufacturers were initially worried that everyone would flee Bangladesh, and so they made these rapid right, labor reforms. Right, right. But then they realized that buyers were staying put, and right. so that's when in December 2016 and in January this yeah. year, they've repressed labor because they know they can they do can it still get, and yeah. get away with it mm-hmm. i mean what happened after ten thousand workers you know the yeah, police definitely. were labor repressive this year it's so dull. Right. so do right. all so i'm with you that yes but uh, rana plaza triggered this this sudden attention you mm-hmm. know the u.s had either you know, minor th- trade sanctions the eu threatened trade yes, sanctions yeah.
1: but now now i don't see that pressure yeah no and it is it is a concern that i think there is you know when things sort of start fading out um you know unless t- Let's hope that there is not another disaster that needs to, you know, sort of bring... I mean, I I think slowly, these are very incremental changes. Um, there is more awareness, whether it's because of the media, whether it's because of the internet, I, you know, there is more awareness now of what is going on over there. I think a little bit more than there used to be. Mm. Um, there, There are all these other sort of strategies of how to link consumers, you know, to understanding what, you know, who makes their clothes, you know, that it's not just this faceless, nameless, you know, like, you know, it's just sort of happening, but there's, you know, trying to connect that. I mean, in other industries, for example, you know, the food, various food, you know, coffee, things like that, there's a, there's a stronger connections between, you know, this sort of um, fair, fair trade or well-resourced, um, you know, the, these kind of products, how consumers are reacting to them. There's less, there's been less, with that in with garments, um, and clothing, but I think that's that's slowly totally changing. I mean, post Rana Plaza, there were you know consumer groups that sort of got together. Here, actually, some based in the UK who started talking about this more. I mean, things I think change is sort of very slow. I mean, and very incremental. Um, but we have but I to mean, just being the pessimist,
0: I mean, the UK has what I would consider the world's worst legislation in the world for global supply chains. We have the modern slavery act. Yeah, like where firms just have to. Write a short statement saying, Oh, yes, we're looking into forced yes. labour. You know, there's no impunity, the there's right. no liability for actual forced mm-hmm. labour. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I see any sort of pressure for change in the UK. Yes. In the UK, you know, if you look at, if you read The Guardian mm-hmm. today, if you re- read any of The Guardian coverage, you know, The Guardian, yeah. made our most sort of centre left mainstream newspaper, yeah. mm-hmm. if you read any of their coverage on Bangladesh or global supply chains or garments or Rana Plaza, it's always pointing the finger at Bangladesh. You know, look at that terrible governance, mm. look, at those, mm-hmm. uh, look at that corruption. There's mm-hmm. never any sense of what you highlight in of your book, company, nothing yeah. about mm-hmm. our, our practices or our consumption yeah, yeah. or our procurement, pra- nothing, nothing like that at all. Right. So I would say that the consumer awareness of their role in how they perpetuate these mm-hmm. things is pretty low. Clearer. Yeah
1: and I mean that's Sorry I'm really I'm yeah.
0: really being a terrible pessimist today but see see, see that's yeah. why I have zero confidence in consumers mm-hmm. and I think that the solution to raising wages must be through increasing productivity in conjunction with improving productivity and strengthening the collective power of labor because the labor, you know, yeah. then mm-hmm. as you can redistribute the surplus that for me mm-hmm. but maybe you're saying you've got more confidence no, in, I don't in, know. The, in I, the western I, activists yes yeah
1: no, I mean, I think it's a combination of things. You know, Bangladesh is not, I mean, as a strategy, as far as Mm. I know, maybe they're talking about it now, but even a few years ago, that was not a part of the domestic strategy to upgrade for productivity. I mean, they talk about that very vaguely, but you don't see that. Mm. So I don't know what that is in terms of, I mean, that's something... The, the the domestic actors need to get together and figure yes, out. Yes, and we may numbers. now see this
0: with the new head of uh, BGMEA, yeah, right? So
1: Hab, yeah, mm-hmm. and she wrote a chapter for this book as well. And so she has a, you know, real vision. Yes. For the, um, I'm kind of excited yeah. by her. Yeah, no, it's great. And I mean, she has a real vision for the industry. And let's see, you know, what happens. I mean, often what happens, so in Bangladesh, I think Rana Plaza was and still is significant in the mm-hmm. sense that they don't want these kind of disasters to be, all over the world. No, it's terrible. It's terrible association for the Bangladesh brand. Neither do, you know, no one really wants this to happen again. That's why we sort of try to make the argument that the way you're trying to prevent it from happening again is a little misguided, you know, just simply by auditing, you know, a small percentage of the factories is not necessarily going to prevent. There's a whole... Host of, and the fact is, I mean, when we're talking about what needs to change, I mean, there's a whole host of other factors that are not so. Being I'm totally
0: addressed. with you that the auditing isn't improving the brand Bangladesh because it doesn't reduce the risks of disasters. But it's not the Bangladeshi manufacturers, you know, the Bangladeshi manufacturers are hugely opposed to the accord of the LR. Yes, right. they don't like it at all. Mm-hmm. They see, they see as being asked to They're invest being imposed in,
1: on, yeah, they, yeah. they
0: see mm-hmm. they've been asked to make these huge mm-hmm. uh, investments well, in and physical been infrastructure. No financial Yes, court, and they object, they, and uh, they yeah. object to mm-hmm. that. So even though the uh, the accord was supposed to be legally binding, with yeah. the buyers making financial commitments, they well, largely they, have not. Yes.
1: Yeah. So all the financial commitment yes. has been on the monitoring yes. side.
0: And outside. and so yes, I totally agree that Brand Bangladesh would thrive if the buyers provided capital investments, etc. Sure. Mm. But how's that going to happen? Why 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 would a, a buyer just. Give a, bun- give a ton of money to make Bangladesh safe, I don't know so the political economy for me, that, that, that aspect I don't know, but, but I'm totally with you that you've I, I'm totally persuaded that this is the correct diagnosis of the problem and for that reason I love
1: the book, but <laughs> my, my question is what to do next, there I don't know I don't know. I mean, again, we propose nothing as a solution mm, in of itself. Mm, it's really mm. an idea. And I mean, the the chapters on Bangladesh, for example, they're very preliminary. I mean, we don't, you know, it's happening now. Yes. You know, we need a five to 10-year, uh, maybe five-year follow-up book to say well, what has yes. happened. You know, it's really, this is so current. And so, you know, it's really unfolding. I mean, we have the extension accord. I mean, what what is that going to do? Mm. I don't know what's going to happen when that leaves. I mean, it's all happening now. Yes. Uh, the timing of the book was such that, you know, it, next year will be seven years. So it was out when I know, six years after. Mm. So we felt that it was a good time to sort of have this critique and to talk about it and to and to explore what actually has happened but what didn't happen. Yes. You know. So that was the timing. But really, I mean because it's happening. It's unfolding. No, right I'm now. with you. So we can only to, we can
0: only plan the future next steps once we worked out what, what's happened and what, what went right. What we, we don't
1: know. know. I mean I feel like there's a real information gap. We just simply don't know how things are gonna play out. Yes, the government has reformed all these labor laws, but mm. what is that actually mm. yeah, mean on sure, the ground? Yeah. You know, Rubana Huck has taken over as BGME mm. president, that's mm. really exciting. What is that gonna mean? Mm. I mean so we don't know. Right, so you're so, gonna come back in five years' time again on the podcast. Yes, <laughs> I think I'll need to. Yeah, <laughs> to thank talk Jesus, about it again.
0: Thank you so much. This has been a great pleasure. Um, yeah. and the and the book is out. So um, so you're welcome to buy that. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alice.